Welcome to Happiness 2.02 podcast. I'm your host, John Tuckums, founder, author, World Government Summit participant, and Forbes featured TEDx speaker, an inquisitive human who loves root knowledge. Happiness 2.02 is a mental health show for entrepreneurs that provides the full human cognition and the full breathing oxygen tools to rapidly shift states of mind and increase energy. Podcast guests include organization founders, world-renowned executives, MDs, PhDs, and remarkable leaders who have incredible stories and are helping billions of people to find their happiness oxygen. You're listening to Happiness 2.02. This is your host, John Tuckums. You're listening to episode 10 with James Nestor. James is a Wall Street Journal featured keynote speaker and New York Times bestselling author. While you're listening to this podcast, if anything stands out to you as thought-provoking or remarkable, take a screenshot and write down what you've heard from James. Post the insight on social media, text the idea to a friend, or email what you've learned to a family member. Get this information out there. Without further ado, episode 10 of Happiness 2.02 podcast with James Nestor. So James, time is a finite resource. Underline everything that you do across your life, your books, your speaking engagements. Why do you do what you do? Ultimately, what drives you at your core? I think at the beginning of my career, at least, I wasn't writing for magazines or books. I was writing for ads and I was writing for catalogs and I was writing copy and I love the craft of writing, um, but there was a, a need to want to do something that had a little more resonance with, with other people. It's cool to write an ad, see it on a billboard, but I didn't really feel like I was contributing too much. So after a while, uh, just at night um, and on weekends, I started writing magazine stories and, and eventually those stories emerged into books. And so that's what I've been doing lately. So I think that the main need that I feel in doing this is I'm incredibly curious about stuff and it's such a privilege to be able to be curious about stuff for a living. And so um, just the idea that I can wake up every morning and learn new things is really exciting. It keeps me running. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, that curiosity, do you, do you recall a time like early on in, in uh, your childhood or as part of your education um, as you're kind of you're building your career or early on as you had your first kind of taste of writing or that curiosity that uh, really uh, stoked some fires inside of you? You know, there was no real pivotal moment. So many authors spent their childhoods reading tons of books. I was not one of those those people. I grew up in Southern California, so most most of what I learned about the world was was at the beach and in the ocean. And I'm still learning every day. Every time I, I go out into the water, I, I get that experience. So, you know, um, I think it was the idea that you could work and live in a different lifestyle. I grew up in an extremely conservative area of California in Orange County, very conservative family, conservative neighborhood, all that. And, you know, you're, you're taught at an early age that there's one path and it's college and it's a job and then you retire and that's it. And you fall into that for a while and it works for a lot of people, but I knew pretty early on that that wasn't quite working for me and I really wanted to explore other avenues. Yeah, and that decision to move down a different path, uh, started off with ads, you know, catalogs, moving into, uh, you know, to, you know, writing stories and books and really uh, feeding that curiosity. Uh, you know, was it uh, your first book? Uh, was it that decision there 
around that time and say, I'm going to take on this, this personal project to start with, or this project that evolved out of a, a work project that turned into, you know, kind of a, a personal curiosity. Sure. I think it was, you know, I had had this job, I was working for as an editor and writing copy and everything was going really, really well, you know, and on the professional level. Um, but I still felt like this wasn't what I wanted to do with, with my life. And so after four years, I remember I was talking to my boss and he's giving me the same speech he gave the year before and the year before that year before that. And just at that moment, I said, you know what, I gotta, I gotta split. (laughs) I gotta do something else. So uh, I didn't quite have enough magazine work at the time. And this was a completely reckless decision. And I hadn't really made a decision like this before, but I actually started my professional career in, in writing, writing books. Um, in my late 30s, which is very, very late in the game. And yep. I had to play a lot of catch up. Um, and so for years, I was grinding away, not earning really anything. Uh, I had socked some money away, so I was living yep. off of that. And it was yep. extremely precarious. But the whole way through, I, I never regretted it. I thought, this is what I want to be doing, and I'm going to figure it out somehow. And And so where things really opened up is when I got an assignment with Outside Magazine, whom I'd written for before, but smaller stories. They sent me to Greece to write about free divers. And it was the second day I was in Greece. I said, oh my God, I not only have one book here all laid out, but I have another one learning about these people, talking to the scientists and discovering like the true human potential. And that, yep. that so little of that has been tapped. And these people really had found a way in. Yeah. So would you describe it as your curiosity in the sport coupled with your your affinity, your passion towards water sports too as well? And there was just a combination of, you know, uh, intense curiosity that kind of just stoked kind of flames inside of you? I think it was both those things for sure that this was happening in the water was a big attraction for me. But what was even more intriguing was that these normal people, people like me and you, tall people, Large people, short people, I mean, you name it, every walk of life, yeah. 14 different countries, they had managed by, by just choice of will, power of will to drastically alter their bodies and allow themselves to do something that was supposed to be scientifically possible. And I thought, if these people were able to do this in the water, what else are we missing out on? What else can, can breathing do for us, for the rest of us on dry land? Yeah. So that was really a launching point for me. For sure. And with your own experiences, uh, if we could just uh, change pace for a second, with your own experiences with water, uh, can you share with us, you know, as it relates to breathing and being in flow states, you know, what uh, you enjoy doing, whether it's uh, water sports or surfing, uh, that really gets you to those heightened states of breathing and mental clarity? Anything in water, especially in the ocean. It doesn't matter if you're body surfing, if you're surfing, if you're swimming, if you're wading. I think having that connection to this primordial source, right? This is where all life came from. This is where we came from. And every time we go back there, I think that we feel that reconnection with with our our ancient primordial roots. And, uh, you know, that sounds a little spacey, a little spiritual, but I really believe that. And, and if you look at at what happens, you know, ocean water is is almost identical to, to blood. It's the same chemical composition to blood. So you're purging all these toxins out of your body when you're in the water and then you're absorbing 
all of these minerals mm. back in. And, and, and we know that. So it's physiological, but it's also mental. So I, I don't put that in silos. Some days I body surf, some days I swim, some days I surf. As long as I'm in the water, I'm in a very, very happy place. And it's just the rules there, everything about it is so divorced from the insanity of land, at least in my opinion. You're, you're yeah. out there with just a different set of rules and you're able to, to compose yourself and react in completely different ways. And I love that transition. Yeah, fantastic. And how do you find your breathing change when you go out there? You have the hecticness of everyday life, you know, schedules, etc. Uh, but when you get out there, how do you find that your, your breathing changes? I find that you are immediately pulled into yourself. You're reacquainted with, with your body and its functions. When you're surfing in, in larger waves, you're completely in control of your breathing, right? You, you can't just be ignoring your breathing when the big wave comes. You, you have to consciously take a big breath, hold it, know how much oxygen's in your body. So it, it seems like we're, we've done a good job in our day-to-day -day lives surrounded by all this wonderful technology, all these computers, but we're completely divorced from our bodies and that, that connection to our bodies. So other people get this running or exercising or meditating. That's fantastic. For me personally, I get that connection when I'm in the water. And, and so breathing specifically, I mean, you get kind of neurotic about breathing when you write a book about it for, for three years, you research <laughs> it for three years. So I'm trying to get some of that out of my head now. And yeah. hopefully that these, these breathing habits and these things I've learned from these experts are becoming uh, habitual ra rather than something I have to consciously do. Nonetheless, I'm thinking about it all the time. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and as part of that, just a, as a personal curiosity of mine, uh, have you had a lot of insights while you're on, in the waves or is that a spot where you just kind of allow the universe uh, you know, to open up, really connect with yourself? Uh, um, has that helped with uh, actually writing your book? I think that absolutely. And, you know, I'd be stuck in a passage. I'd be stuck at a point of research. I wouldn't know what chapter to write next. And I'd go out into the water and then all of a sudden everything becomes clear. And I know that sounds like, wow. a, but it's totally true. And this isn't just, you know, these are like the shower moments for other people. Yep. The moment you step away from your computer and that analytical brain, the other creative side and subconscious is able to come up. And that's where you come up with these epiphanies. I was talking to, um, I interviewed this guy, Harry Gesner, twice down in Malibu. Yep. His um, design for his his house that 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 he designed right on the beach right next to him was used for the Sydney Opera House. Famous architect, and wow. he surfing was an essential part of his process. He would go out there and suddenly get these epiphanies and try to sketch them into the wax of his board. So I think it's essential to it's it's great to to just be charging all day in front of your computer getting stuff done. That's awesome, but I found it's even more effective to take those little breaks and reflect on things. That's when the real epiphanies come through. For sure. And uh, if we shift gears towards, um, you know, some of the small things you do, those small breaks, you know, when you can't get out to the water that help you to maintain happiness, maintain happiness or well-being in your personal life. You know, life has its ups and downs. Uh, you know, when you're not in the waves, what are some of the small things that you do that you can share with the audience? Um, you know, just personally, whether it's, uh, you know, coffee at the start of the day or, or you know, just taking time out, uh, you know, halfway through your day. Um, if you can share maybe a couple of takeaways for, for the audience. I breathe. I mean, that, that's the anchor. And I know that sounds cheesy, but it's true. If I'm feeling 
stress and anxiety and there's you know 40 emails I haven't responded to I'm going to slow down I'm going to slow my breathing to about 5 or 6 breaths per minute which is about 5 or 6 seconds in inhale about 5 to 6 seconds out and when you do this and this has been studied extensively over the past few decades when you do this when you breathe like this the body's systems enter a state of coherence where everything's mm. able to work at peak efficiency. More blood to the brain, more circulation, you calm yourself down. And, and so I use that as a trick whenever I get to those points of like things are getting too nuts. At the same time, you know, breathing is a, it's a huge toolkit. You can use different breathing for, for someone told me, uh, she said, there, there's as many ways to breathe as there are foods to eat. And, you know, each of them can have their, their different function, their different nutrition for a certain time. So there, there's a lot of ways of doing this, but, but that for me, I've found is a great anchor because you can do it anywhere, driving at your office, walking around, uh, you always carry your breath with you and you yep. can use that as a, as a tool to hack into your body. Yeah, that's amazing. So, can you tell us more about your book that uh, that you've just uh, uh, you've just released? Sure. Um, this is a book. I actually had the idea for this book years and years ago. It started at that free diving competition, um, but I just kind of shelved it uh, because I was working on another book, Deep, which was about the human connection to the ocean. Mm. Where it followed every every chapter in that book goes deeper and deeper, and 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 so finally you you end up at the Marianas Trench. So at the very mm. bottom of the deepest ocean, and you're looking at, at different life forms and biology and how we're connected at each of those depths. So, you know, the whole time I was learning to free dive myself, I was talking to these free divers. They kept saying, like, breathing is going to allow you to do so much more than to hold your breath for eight minutes or to dive down to 400 feet. And so I kept collecting these these stories. And, and finally, when I had time... When, when Deep was done, I sat down and I said, okay, I'm ready to do this. I, I went out into the field and talked. I was lucky enough to talk to the experts in this field. And this story unfolded that was unlike anything I expected going in. I mean, usually when you, when you start a book, you think you're going to know the path. You mm-hmm. think you're going to know the beginning. You have an idea of how it's going to end. This thing took such a hard left turn after six months that I'm still catching up with all the research right now. And when you say hard left turn, can you unpack that a little bit more? Uh, just uh, you probably had a vision of what breathing would entail based on your past experiences, your exposure to free diving. Um, and but it sounded like there was a moment where you know it took a hard left turn, and all of a sudden, whoa, there's way more to unpack here. So sure. Um, well, when you write a nonfiction book, you submit a proposal of about 50 to 60 pages and yep. you sell that proposal and you get a modicum of, of cash to go out and write it. They keep you hungry. So you really want to get this book done. Yep. Um, and so I wrote this proposal. I said, here are the leaders in the field. Here's what I'm going to write about. This is how breathing affects organs. Had it all figured out. Everyone said, this is fantastic. Great. About six months in, I was talking to a biological anthropologist because I talked to everybody. I think that you can learn something from, from anyone you talk to and wasn't expecting much. And she, she showed me some old skulls, old human skulls, mm. and they all had perfectly straight teeth. They didn't have their wisdom teeth yanked out. Uh, they had these huge jaws, these huge nasal apertures. Then she showed me some new skulls and they all had totally crooked teeth. Right. Their nasal apertures were smaller yeah. and their, their mouths had shrunk. And, and she asked me, she said, 
why do we have crooked teeth now when we didn't in the past? Why do all animals found in the wild have perfectly straight teeth? So it's turned out that our mouths have, have been growing smaller and smaller. And this is, this is really sped up in the last 400 years. And they've grown so small now, our teeth no longer fit in our mouths. And, and it's much harder for us to breathe because a small mouth makes it harder to breathe. So sleep apnea, snoring, asthma, mm. on and on and on. So many of these problems are correlated to, to this, this evolutionary change in our mouths. And this completely blew me away because I had uh. understood the breathing problems were associated with smog or anxiety, but they're not. They're anatomical. Yeah, so a, a huge insight that uh, it's like, okay, now the veil is, is, is coming way clearer. And then from there, you realize that you know, you, the, the expansiveness of the book or where you can go with it has so many different turns. Who are some of the most influential people as part of that journey of, you know, you've made this big kind of aha moment, uh, really that helped you to go even deeper, to understand those connections uh, as, as you cover with inside the book. Um, if you could give us a, you know, just kind of a, you know, a sneak peek, so to speak. Sure. Well, I, I guess it really first started when I had an interview with Jayakar Nayak, who's the mm. chief of rhinology research at Stanford. I'm in San Francisco, so Stanford's quite close and an amazing resource for research. And I was lucky enough to con this guy into getting lunch with me. I said, you know, I'm a journalist. I'm writing this book. You want to hang out? and want to talk about your work. And what he told me just about the nose, I mean, this is just one organ in the body of most of us know that the nose like filters, heats, treats raw air, humidifies it, all of that. But yep. I had no idea the role that it played in blood pressure or in the distribution of hormones in our body, or digestion, or how it was related to menstrual cycle, woman's menstrual cycle, or yeah. heart rate, or circulate, on and on and on. And he told me that so few of us are breathing from the nose now. We're, we're becoming mouth breathers, and we're denying our bodies this essential organ. And, and this can lead to so many chronic problems. So here's a guy, this sounds a little like woo-woo new age stuff, but Here's a guy at Stanford who's at the top of his field yeah. telling me this. And I said, there's, there's a story hidden in here that I haven't seen written in anywhere else. And so he was a launching pad and has been such a great rock through this process because, again, this guy is a real scientist and was able to really separate the, the chaff from, from the weed here, you know, and, and show me the right path forward. So... Using him as a springboard, I just went off in, in various crazy directions. I mean, I could give you more examples of more people if you'd like, but I think he was a huge help at the beginning. Yeah, I'd love to, if there's another example that's just top of mind that, uh, uh, that you'd like to acknowledge too as well. I know there's probably uh, you know, too many to cover off with inside your book, but uh, if there's another person that uh, you'd love to, I'd love to hear more. Sure. What I found is so many of these, these breathing practices and so much of this advice on healthy breathing had been around for thousands and thousands mm. of years. There's seven books of the Chinese Tao dedicated 100% to breathing. This is what happens when you do it poorly, which is really bad. This is what happens when you do it correctly, 
which is really good. Yeah. And ancient Hindus were, were finding the same exact thing 3,000 years ago. And then the Japanese found it. And then we found it. And the ancient Greeks found it. So these things keep bubbling up. And then they kept getting forgotten for some reason. And then they bubble up in a different culture at a different time, be discovered by a different person. So uh, it was a little frustrating because I was like, God, if we just looked at this past research, and some of it was scientific research in the 1800s, we, we would learn so much more, you know, ab yeah. about this mysterious subject. So, so one character, and for some reason there were some real colorful characters, which was great as a writer to write about, yeah. um, was a choral conductor na named Carl Stow, who developed the system to teach singers how to sing better. It worked ah, okay. really well. He, he taught singers at the Met Opera, and he did this for years and years. Then he was asked to help emphysemics at the VA hospitals on the East Coast in the 60s. And the, these people had been literally left to die because they had no way of treating them. They'd pump them up with antibiotics if they got an infection. They'd hook them up to an oxygen tank and they'd mm. just leave them there. So, so Stow, here's a guy who's not a doctor, but had an intimate understanding of breath and how the body works. He went in there for, for 10 years and he was able to teach these emphysemics nothing more than the power of breathing. And he healed them so much more effectively than any other therapy. These people left for dead were able to walk up and go back home. Holy so he, he did this for, for 10 years and then went and taught the uh, Olympic track team in 1968 who went yeah. on to win more gold medals than anyone. Whoa. And this guy, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I just, that's, that's amazing. So that uh, he could, he could, all the knowledge that he'd gained and be able to translate for people, he can apply that knowledge of breath to an entirely different audience, which is an elite level you know, of uh, elite performers with the Olympics. Everyone can benefit from breathing better. That, that, that's what's great about this stuff. So, I mean, I can't imagine in any population further apart than emphysemics and track runners, <laughs> yeah. you know, for the Olympic sprinters. They're as far apart as possible, but they both shared in these incredible benefits. And, and what was amazing about his work is it was confirmed with x-rays and mm. x-rays and data and studies. And then when he left, it all disappeared, even though it was, we haven't found any more effective therapy. And so this guy is completely forgotten. And yet there's this huge body of decades of research that has just been sitting there. So, you know, as a journalist stumbling across these stories, just like, this is incredible. And why aren't people talking about this guy and his, his therapy? So I would say he was definitely one of, one of the top characters I, I was able to come across. Mm -hmm. And why uh, you've done a lot of research, you've uncovered and you know, turned up a lot of rocks to find out where these pockets of research have kind of set or been left. Uh, why do you think, uh, and you know, if you could share it with the audience, the, the title of your book, the, the complete title with subtitle, um, mm. why do you think you know, a lot of this stuff has been lost or temporarily misplaced? Uh, do you have any, uh, you know, have you come to any conclusions or opinions on, you know, it would get so far, or maybe it was just, you know, it was the, the people that were involved with it that had great knowledge and it was lost with the people afterwards. But I'd love to hear, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the title of your book and, and I think that tie into the, the subtitle too. Sure. Well, I called the book Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art because 
what I've found is so much of this lost art of breathing has is being recently rediscovered now and found to be extremely effective, very beneficial, even with with COVID, with this pandemic. Mm. So, you know, there's too many guilty parties as, as to why this stuff hasn't come into the mainstream. But I've talked to enough. My father-in-law is a pulmonologist. He's been in the field for oh, wow. 40 years. I've talked to dozens and dozens of of researchers and scientists at Stanford, Harvard, University of Penn, on on and on. And what they've told me is I've never written about medical science before. So this is a new field. They, they mm-hmm. said that you were put into silos when, when you're learning your, your trade in medicine. So mm. if you're a nose guy, you are only focused on the nose. If you're a lung guy, like pulmonologists focus on pathologies of the lungs. They're right. focusing on cancer and they're do amazing stuff, help save innumerable people. So it's such a great thing to have modern Western medicine helping us out when we get sick. But they're only looking at the lungs. They're, they're not looking at the nose and the mouth. But, but our body, that's not how our bodies work. You know, when, when one thing is affected upstream, it's going to affect what's happening downstream. Mm. So I think you have to look at the whole body and those interactions be, between these different organs and these different things to truly understand what, what health is and, and how to treat things. So I, I see that changing right now in which airway doctors are talking to sleep doctors and sleep doctors are talking to pulmonologists. Pulmonologists are talking to neuroscientists. And this is really what needs needs to happen. You know, I was I was shocked and fascinated that so much of the research I was digging up on breathing, my father-in-law had never heard about. Mm, and yeah. and so he was a great sounding board too. This guy is really conservative. You know, his medical beliefs are pretty conservative. He's real, you know, real straight ahead guy. And and so to to watch him say, "Why didn't I know about this? Why aren't other people learning this? This all makes perfect sense." Uh it's a wonderful experience. And, you know, I, I think the key here is is not to go into these silos and battle one another. But I think we can learn a lot by working together and pushing this thing forward that way. Mm-hmm. And how do you see if you can encapsulate uh, your book? There's, you know, so many tremendous gems within inside of it in terms of knowledge and uh, just connections across the body and and how to really bring forward kind of a, a new era of health where pockets in the past have been forgotten you know you've done this immense work to pull together all these pockets that have been lost put aside how would you just encapsulate or describe really what this brook has the potential and is manifesting at this stage in terms of uh, you know kind of a new era of health which is not only in silos um you share with share with us your thoughts sir yeah, I think that the real key here is to remain objective and curious. Mm. If anything can be measured, it can be studied. And if it can be studied, that's what science is. So, so many people, so many skeptics say, oh, I don't believe that. I, you know, forget it. But if we have the tools to measure something and choose not to because we don't believe in it, that's not science right? That's not how science works. That's a, a, a very hard edged, like religious yeah. tract to, to science. So that's not fair. Why not measure things and study them objectively? And if they don't pan out, that's perfect, right? You know, you're moving this thing along. So the idea that there's a medical textbook and it's shut and it's never going to be changed again is garbage because yep. this is something I've, I've also learned from doctors and scientists. I heard this a couple of times. They said, if you look in the past right now, you look in the history, 
at least 50 to 70% of what we thought we knew about medicine has been proven wrong. Yeah. Today, 50 to 70% of what we think we know about medicine will be proven wrong. So science does not have an endpoint. It continues, right? And it grows. And I think that it would benefit everybody to, to be objective and curious and to measure even things that seem crazy and insane, fallacious and new agey, if they can be measured, they can be studied. Yeah. And I think we learn a lot in that process. Yeah, and with the, the advent of uh, exponential technologies, which enables new measurements, uh, we're going to have so much more um, you know, knowledge to, to base our, you know, kind of our future treatments for people. This has absolutely been tremendous. And this body of work that you pulled together imagine that, you know, now as you're, and if you'd like to share any news too as well, because I know you just released and uh, uh, in terms of acknowledgements or, you know, awards that you're winning at this stage, uh, but uh, you made, you're making a tremendous impact on the, on the market in terms of bringing this new, this old knowledge, uh, this uh, lost art forward. Um, and I know you shared before, uh, you know, just before the podcast here, if you could share it with the audience too, uh, related to uh, a recent acknowledgement related to New York, if, if I could <laughs> preface it. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it was great. The book's been out for about six days and we just hit number, number six on the New York Times uh, bestseller list. And that really excites me because, you know, I'm a journalist. This is not my research. I went out into the field and found these people who have been working in some semi-obscurity for so long and finding these basic truths to breathing and human health. And so it is an absolute pleasure to get their word out to as many people as possible and, and allow us to all work together to uh, try to improve the situation here and, um, and understand the true potential of, of the human body. A tremendous congratulations uh, to yourself and everybody that's uh, been involved with uh, you know this this massive undertaking. So, how can people find you? Um, my website's a good place to go, uh, mrjamesnester.com. The whole Mister thing wasn't a cutesy thing. James Nestor was already taken, so you're going to have to put an MR in front of in front of James Nestor. I'm on social media too, Mister James Nestor at, at any social media handle, Facebook. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, all of that. And there's, uh, for what it's worth, for anyone that's curious about the science and the studies, I put all 500 scientific references to the book um, available free online that anyone can can go to. And that's all available uh, at mrjamesnester.com. Wow. And where can people find your book? Uh, wherever books are sold, which I guess nowadays is, you know, online, yeah. um, but, but it's, it's all over the place and they're, they're printing more. So it's been sold out for the past couple of days, but more should be moving in uh, real soon. Wow. James, thank you for your remarkable books, your speaking engagements and all the happiness oxygen you bring to the world. And a tremendous thank you to all the listeners. As always, this has been your host, John Tuckums. You have made it to the end of the podcast. It's your host, John Tuckums. I want to take this moment to sincerely thank you. I'm incredibly grateful for the time you are taking to invest in your life. And if you gained something valuable from this episode and want to give me value somehow, I would tremendously appreciate if you went to Apple Podcasts, iTunes. If you have an Apple product where you listen to this podcast and leave this show a review, you are free to send me a message or email. Contact information is in the description below. Thank you again for listening and thank you for your contributions in helping billions of people to find their happiness oxygen.